0: Good morning, everybody. Um, My name's Justin, and it's great to see you. This is the first time that I um, am preaching the bridge, I think, in this new space. So praise the Lord. Um, So six years ago, six years ago this week, my life changed forever. My life changed because my first child was born my son and I remember the first time I laid eyes on him and how my heart leapt in my chest and I remember holding him in my arms for the very first time and how I thought oh this is the greatest thing in the world and nothing will ever be the same suddenly and dramatically everything in my life changed. Now, a few years before my son was born, my life changed when I was married. And a few years after my son was born, my life was made complete when my second child, my daughter, was born. All of these things, my friends, represent inflection points, defining moments in life when everything changed. And I wonder if you can think of an inflection point in your life, a time when everything changed. Uh, Maybe it was when you moved into your freshman dorm room and then you hugged your parents one last time before they drove away. Or maybe it was when you walked into the room and you saw her, her, and the two of you locked eyes together. Or maybe it was when the doctor came back into the room and said the word, cancer or dementia, or diabetes. In that moment, everything changed. Our scripture today tells about an inflection point, a defining moment, a dramatic time when everything changed. Uh, Let's think back to last week. Last week, we uh, looked at the book of Acts chapter 2, which tells about the birth of the church. How on the day of Pentecost, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven were gathered together in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is poured out on them and a new creation, a new community of faith is born. Now let's make note, this new community of faith consists entirely of Jews. Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It's a small, very small minority sect within the much larger body of Judaism. That was last week. This week, we look at the book of Acts chapter 11. Acts 11 verses one through 18 is actually just a recap of what happens in Acts chapter 10. The chapter before. Um, in Acts chapter 10, we hear the story of Peter and Cornelius, and it's the longest story in the whole book of Acts, the longest narrative. Uh, the author of the book of Acts takes his time with the story. He tells it at length with great detail and specificity, which I think just underscores its importance. Here, the narrative of the book of Acts takes a dramatic turn There is a plot twist that no one would expect and what happens is nothing less than one of the most important events in the history of the church and by way of the church, the world. So I've organized today's sermon into three parts. The way things were, how things changed, and what it means for us. Together for the next few minutes, let's think about the way things were, how things changed, and what it means for us. It all begins in chapter 11. And I think you received some sermon notes, maybe that look like this. Fish around in your seat uh, if you have one. Acts chapter 11. The apostles and believers in Judea, all of whom were Jewish, by the way, heard that the Gentiles had accepted the word of God. So when Peter went to Jerusalem, he was criticized. They said to him, why did you go to Gentiles and eat with them? So, right off the bat, there is dramatic tension. There is a tension that can be felt uh, through the pages. There is a tension that can be felt through the ages, from the first century to the 21st century today. Peter is being criticized, and he's being criticized for associating with people who are unclean. Now, when I say unclean, I'm not talking about personal hygiene. I'm not talking about taking a bath, because to the Jewish way of thinking, no bath could ever make these people acceptable. You see, in the world of the New Testament, there are two types of people. There are Jews and there are non-Jews. Or in other words, there are Jews and there are Gentiles. Anyone who is not a Jew is a Gentile. So, for example, if you were Roman, then you were a Gentile. If you were African, then you were a Gentile. If you were Asian, then you were a Gentile. In the cultural context of the New Testament, there were two and only two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. You were either one or the other, and the two did not mix. In fact, the two have great disdain for each other. Jew and Gentile aren't ways of simply identifying one another. No, these are ways of sorting people, labeling people, and putting them down. Uh, You might think of them as as racial epithets. Uh, If we reread Acts 11, the opening verses, you can hear it. Uh, It says, beginning in chapter, or in verse 2, So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to these uncircumcised men and eat with them? Uh, You can just hear the derision in their language. Jews and Gentiles. In this context, these terms are used to label who is clean and who is unclean. Who is right and who is wrong. Who is in and who is out. Maybe the best way that we can put it is this. Another way of saying Jew and Gentile is us and them, here we are, we're over here, and we're us, and they are over there, they're them, and thank God they're way over there, and never between the two shall meet, us and them. Reverend Dr. William Barclay, the great Scottish pastor and theologian, says it so well in your sermon notes. He says, let us remember that the Jews believed that other nations were quite outside the mercy of God. Ouch, so there's Israel and every other nation in the world is just kindling for the fire of God's wrath. Okay, well, a very strict Jew would have no contact with a Gentile or even with a fellow Jew who did not keep the law. In particular, strict Jews would never have as a guest or be the guest of someone who did not observe the law. That's just the way things were Jews and Gentiles, they are separate, segregated. They dislike each other immensely, and that's just the way it is. But everything changes, my friends. Everything changes when God sends Peter a vision and some visitors. Look with me at verses 5 through 10. Peter says, I was in the city of Joppa praying And in a trance, I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat, partake of this lovely meal. But I replied, by no means, Lord. For I am a good Jew, and nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean, you must not call unclean. This happened three times. Three, a holy number which only validates the message. This happened three times, and then everything was pulled up to heaven again. In this vision, Peter sees foods that aren't kosher, foods that violate the strict dietary laws found in Scripture. An observant Jew wouldn't even think about eating these foods. But in the vision, Peter is told, what God has made clean, you must not call unclean. The restriction is lifted and all the foods that once repulsed Peter are suddenly open to him. And that's not all, because not only has Peter sent a vision, he's also sent some visitors. And these visitors are, wait for it, Gentiles. Look at verses 11 through 12. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. So, who are these visitors from Caesarea? Well, they're representatives of a man named Cornelius, and we know that because we have read Acts chapter 10. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He's a member of the Italian cohort, specifically. He is a mid- to upper-level officer in the military, and he's a Roman, he is a Gentile. He's a Gentile living in Caesarea. Well, one day, God speaks to this Gentile in Caesarea through a vision, and he says, Cornelius, send some men to the city of Joppa. Have them find a man named Peter. He's living in a house by the sea. And isn't that just so typical for Peter, who was once a fisherman? Peter has a very important message. So have your men bring Peter back to you. So... Three Gentiles knock on Peter's door, and Peter, a Jew, is reluctant to invite them in or to go with them. But, verse 11, the Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. So, Not only is Peter instructed about the food that can be on his dinner table, he is also instructed about who can sit around that dinner table with him in fellowship. Peter is given new instructions about those with whom he may associate, and even though it goes against the grain of his entire history, all of his upbringing, all of his training, even though it went against everything he thought he knew, he trusts And obeys the Lord. And when Peter trusts and obeys the Lord, miracles happen. From the lips of Peter, a Jew, the Gentiles hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They receive Christ as their Savior and Lord. The Holy Spirit falls on them. They begin to speak in tongues. They are baptized into the family of God. And the church and the world are turned upside down. Or maybe we should say they are turned right side up. If you'll look with me in your sermon notes, you'll see that William Barclay writes, In this passage, the most surprising things are happening. When messengers from Cornelius are at the door, and knowing the Jewish view of Gentiles, they came no further than the door, Peter invites them in, and he gives them hospitality. And when Peter arrived at Caesarea, Cornelius met him at his front door, no doubt wondering if Peter would cross the threshold, and Peter did. He came in. In the most amazing way, the barriers are beginning to go down. Yes, my friends. Hallelujah. This is a major inflection point. This is when everything changed. The walls between Jews and Gentiles are beginning to go down. Because look at verse 18. God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Oh, it is the kindness and the love of God that lead us to repentance, and repentance leads to life. And that life isn't just for the Jewish people, for Israel, it's for all people. It's also for the Gentiles. And it is here, my friends, that Christianity begins to go from a small a very small minority sect within the much larger body of Judaism to its own separate, distinct, different, full-fledged spiritual movement that's for the entire world. And that launches the church into the world in missionary activity. Oh, friends, so far today... We have looked at the way things were, Jews and Gentiles, how things changed, vision and visitors. Now let's ask, what does all of this mean for us? Well, friends, if this passage shows us anything at all, it shows us that the love of God is far larger and greater than ever previously imagined. God's love isn't just for one group of people. It's for all groups of people. Peter and the other believers are realizing, they're discovering that God's love isn't just for one nation, Israel. No, it's for all nations, the entire world, and that launches them, that sends them into the world as missionaries. Ultimately, my friends, this passage isn't about a vision that Peter has. It's about a vision that God has. Complete your sermon notes by writing that down. This passage isn't about a vision that Peter has. It's about a vision that God has. This passage is about the vision that God has for the church, God's purpose and plan for the church, what the church is called and created to be. The church is the communion of saints, the fellowship of God's people, And it's called and created to be radically diverse, as diverse as the Amazon rainforest. The church is meant to be radically hospitable, a hundred times warmer and more welcoming than any Southern mama. The church is meant to be radically inclusive, a tent as big as God himself. The salvation that was purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross isn't just for one people. It's for all the peoples. God envisions a church where all nations, all races, every class, every culture, every socioeconomic strata, where every human category can be reached and brought in and reconciled together with God and each other, really, reconciled. God envisions a church where those who were once mortal enemies now call each other sister and brother and kin. On May 9th, 1961, there were two young men at a bus station in Rock Creek, South Carolina. One of the men was white. His name was Albert Bigelow, and the other man was black. His name was John Lewis, and the two men were together. They sat together on the bus, and these two men, Albert and John, walked into a waiting room in the bus station that was labeled for whites only. Well, within a minute, they were attacked by a mob of angry white men. But Albert and John, uh, both Albert and John were beaten terribly. John in particular, he was found lying on the floor in a pool of blood No charges were ever pressed against the perps. Well, a few years later, John Lewis finds himself on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial as the youngest speaker at the March on Washington. And a few more years later, John Lewis finds himself in the nation's capital again, only this time as a member of the House of Representatives. And in 2009, Congressman. John Lewis received an unexpected visitor at his office on Capitol Hill. Talk about Peter receiving some unexpected visitors from Caesarea. John Lewis on Capitol Hill receives some unexpected visitors too. One was a white man in his 70s, the other was the man's son, a man in his 40s. The older white man introduced himself My name is Elwin Wilson. And I'm one of the folks who beat you so badly all those years ago in Rock Creek, South Carolina. Elwin Wilson went on to explain that he had been a member of the Ku Klux Klan. He spent years of his life in Klan activities, uh, threatening minorities, intimidating voters, burning crosses, perpetuating violence. But eventually, he came to an inflection point in his life. He came to a point of dramatic change. And what changed in his life? What motivated that change? Well, it was a brown eyed, brown haired man from Nazareth who lived 2,000 years ago. Elwin Wilson met the Lord. He underwent a Christian conversion. He gave his life to Christ, repented of his sins, and began to make amends for all the things that he had done. And that's what brought him to Capitol Hill this day. Congressman Lewis, he said, my name is Elwin Wilson. I'm one of the folks who beat you so badly all those years ago in Rock Creek, South Carolina. And I want to apologize. Will you forgive me? John Lewis, who was also a Christian, whose life and career and his work in the world were motivated by his Christian faith, said, yes, I accept your apology, and I forgive you. Elwin Wilson started crying. His son started crying. John Lewis started crying, and the three men sealed their reconciliation with one almighty hug. And yesterday... In our own fair city, we renamed one of our most prominent downtown streets officially as John Lewis Way. Sisters and brothers in Christ, how can we more and more with each passing day and with each passing week and month and year be a church like that? How can we be a church where diverse peoples are not only brought together under one roof, but really reconciled to one another? How can groups of people who once hated each other live together in love and harmony under the banner of Jesus Christ? This is God's vision for the church. Let's take that vision and make it a reality.